this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Who of you know what John 14 verse 6 says? Yes? That's where Jesus says, I'm the way truth and a life and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's probably one of the most well-known. I'm sure quite a few of you uh, would, have, would have known that verse or will know that verse, uh, even if you don't know that it was in John 14 verse 6. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known verses in, um, in the Bible because it captures such an important aspect of Christianity. But it's also at the very same time probably one of the most notorious verses in the Bible especially to those who are not Christians, to those who do not believe. Many postmodern skeptics find, find that, that verse uh, very troubling because it's so exclusive, so completely, totally exclusive. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not... not People come to the Father through me, and then there are few who come to the Father in different ways. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's very exclusive, and that militates against our pluralistic, modern, Western society and, and our sensibilities and our culture. We live in a pluralistic society, um, which for decades and hundreds and even thousands of years, where people from different cultures, different religions, different backgrounds struggle to live together in peace. And um, many people think the only way you can have such peace is if you avoid making these kind of exclusive claims that Jesus is, is uh, clearly making here in, in John 14 verse 6. You know, so, so many people would, would say that that kind of view that Jesus... That, that, that He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way of salvation. That that is intolerant... Or even arrogant, many people will say. So what I want to do this, this morning is just look at, at that uh, both from a biblical perspective and from a, a logical perspective and, and see, you know, is what Jesus is claiming here, is it reasonable? Is it, is it tolerant like, like many people believe, you know? Should people be offended by it? Is it arrogant to make such exclusive claims? Or is it Right. Uh, to say that. But I just want to start with another verse. Um, you know, some people might say, uh, yes, you know, Jesus, the way, all that kind of thing, we have salvation, but salvation from what? <laughs> Why do we even need to be saved, you know? Uh, you, you, you're like a doctor telling me you, you've got good news, you've, you've got a cure for me. I didn't even know that I was diagnosed with some other disease, you know. <laughs> I didn't know I was sick. <laughs> What's going on here? Um, I just want to read you a verse in uh, the same Gospel of John from verse 16. Uh, probably one of the few verses that's more famous than John 14 verse 6 is John 3 verse 16. I'm just going to read it up to verse 18. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, I, I, I love the saying, you can, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. 
cross with Jesus hanging on it as God's, the Father's gift to us, stands as an eternal monument that God loved the world more than it deserved. And then in verse 17, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then verse 18, I want you to especially focus on this. Whoever believes in Him, that's Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what we see here is that God is a God of love who wants to save the world. But save the world from what? Condemnation. Judgment. Condemnation is um, when, when you get declared guilty and you stand guilty before the judge. So, so here God is as the judge and through the law, through the Old Testament, everyone has already been pronounced guilty before Him. He is such a holy God that it's not good enough to obey some of the laws some of the time or even most of the laws most of the time. You've got to obey all of the laws all the time. Otherwise, you stand guilty and condemned before Him as judge. That is how perfect the judge is. And that's how perfect the standard is. And the reality is that no one can be good enough, long enough, consistently enough to earn God's favor. So, you know, there's this, this uncomfortable reality of God's judgment rightly hanging over mankind. And, you know, some, some uh, you know, of you might say, yeah, I don't, I'm, not sure. I'm, I'm checking out this Christianity thing and I'm not sure I, I believe it yet. But, you know, this judgment thing, you know, I've, I've more pressing matters in my life. I'm not so sure I'm, I want to worry about that now. I, I have more pressing matters than God's judgment in my life. You know, I have bills to pay. You know, I, I have family, a family to take care of. You know, I've, I've got to climb the corporate ladder. You know, you know, maybe I've got exams to write and stuff. Well, think, you know, in 2001, I think it was the end of 2001. Was that when the tsunami was? When was the tsunami? 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. Imagine a fisherman on his boat. You know, uh, sitting there preparing for the day to go out for the day and to go and fish, you know, do his business. And the radio squawks and he picks it up and it's a tsunami warning. And he thinks to himself, you know, I have more pressing matters, you know, to attend to than this tsunami warning. You know, uh, you know someone says a tsunami is coming, but, but I've, you know, I have bills to pay. You know, I have a business to run. I have a family to take care of. I have more pressing matters than, than this tsunami warning. And the reality is, what God is giving us here is a, is a type of tsunami warning. And we, we can't really afford to ignore it, can we? If, we? if we're sensible, we can't really afford to ignore it. Um, we, need to, we need to take it seriously. So let me just read to you from John chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 7. Uh, you can follow it on the screen with me. And uh, John was very close to Jesus. He actually is referred to in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there is a, a really bold brother, you know, who was very, you know, secure in his relationship with, with Jesus. And uh, he was the one probably whose house Jesus used uh, 
for the Last Supper, and we're going to have communion at the end of the service, when the, when the Last Supper was instituted, it was probably in his house, and, and he was sitting on the, in the place of honor at Jesus' right hand and leaning back on Jesus' breast um, and, and, and conversing with him. So, so this is a, a guy who was giving us a very intimate testimony, personal eyewitness testimony about what he experienced with Jesus. And um, this is on the last day in John 14, just before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, where Jesus is speaking in private to his disciples. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Jesus, uh, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus sort of incredulously looked at him and said, Thomas, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And um, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm, I, guys, I know you don't be troubled about this, but I actually have to go away. You've been walking with me for three years. I've been there to support you, to teach you. You know, you've been really leaning heavily on me, but I have to go away. And, I, but, but, and it's, it, the going away is not going to be nice. Uh, going away is actually a euphemism. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. He actually says it in so many words. I'm going to be tortured to death, basically, you know. Uh, but don't worry. I, I'm just going away, and then I'm going to prepare a place for you, you know, in my father's house. It, I always find it so interesting. It's in my father's house, not in my father's hotel. <laughs> Visitors and guests stay in a hotel. Children stay in the house. God's going, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Um, and then he says, so that where I am, you may be also, so you can be with me for eternity. And, and then he says, and you know where I'm going and you know the way. And, and, and then Thomas says, uh, actually, Lord, <laughs> um, we, we're not sure where you're going and, and how can we then know the way? And then Jesus says, but Thomas, don't you realize I am the way and the truth and the life and, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. And, um, you know, I, I want to I share with, basically, with two groups this morning. On the one hand, I want to share with, with uh, Christians, believers, Jesus followers. You know, we need to, um, I'm, I'm actually going to read a, 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 quite a few portions and quotes from, from this book by Tim Keller called Reasons, The Reason for God. And I, I quite recommend it. So if you, if you like what I'm sharing, go and get, you know, this, what I'm sharing is just from one of the chapters. You know, go and get yourself a book and, and read it. But um, what he says is we need to really wrestle with our own doubts and our own questions so that we can give honest answers and, and really well-thought-out answers, sincere answers to people who have honest questions about God. You know, we, we shouldn't short-circuit the process. So don't just sort of sweep all the challenges that you, that you experience in your own heart Emotional challenges, intellectual challenges. Don't just sweep them under the rug. Don't just, you know, dismiss your friends who do not believe in Jesus, their questions. Don't just dismiss them. You know, really think about them, pray about them, 
learn and, 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 and get uh, good answers to them. I just want to um, read this. He says, I want to make a proposal. This is Keller, that, uh, Timothy Keller, that I have seen bear much fruit uh, in the lives of young New Yorkers over the years. I recommend that each side look at doubt in a radically different way. Let's begin with believers. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without uh, antibodies in it. And then he goes on and he says, Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, and their fri- but also their friends' and their neighbors' doubts. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. That's very important, people. So many people only hold beliefs because they inherited them from their parents or from their culture. And that is not, I think, a responsible belief. We need to examine the beliefs that we received. And that means asking tough questions sometimes. And we should, we should be bold enough to ask the tough questions, believing that if the Bible is true, it will stand the test and the examination. Um, only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process of asking tough questions, wrestling with tough questions, will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. But even as believers should learn to look for reasons behind their faith, skeptics should learn to look for, the, for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, this is very important, all doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternative beliefs. That's very important to realize. It's not like the questions about God and about the purpose of life and so on is, is, is a wrestle between faith and science or you know, just secular reasoning. It's between faith and faith. It's between one form of faith and another. Doubt is a form of faith. You cannot doubt one set of beliefs without affirming an opposing set of beliefs. The only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternative belief under each of the doubts, of your doubts, and then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian beliefs than you do of your own beliefs. But that is frequently what, what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. You must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek for Christian, from Christians for their beliefs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they at first appeared. I commend two processes to my readers. I urge skeptics to wrestle with the, the unexamined blind faith on which skepticism is so often based and to see how hard it is to justify those beliefs to those who do not share them. I also urge believers to wrestle with their personal and cultural uh, culture's objections to faith at the end of each process. Even if you remain the skeptic or believer you have been, you will hold your position 
own position with both greater clarity and greater humility. Then there will be an understanding, sympathy, and respect for the other side that did not exist before. Believers and non-believers will rise to the level of disagreement rather than simply denouncing one another, which is a good thing. So, um, you know, I, I, I really agree with, with what Kelly is saying here, and I think we need to be willing, all of us, whether we're believers or non-believers, whether we're Jesus followers or not, Whatever our belief system is, we should be willing to ask the hard questions and be honest and humble enough with ourselves to examine our beliefs and to say, what basis do I have for believing in this? And is it, is it a sufficient basis? And um, so if, if you're sitting here and, and you're not a believer yet and you, you're wrestling with this whole thing about Christianity, we, we're not going to try and force you to become a Christian. I don't think you can force anyone to become a Christian. I think Christian, Christianity must be entered into willingly, even eagerly. Otherwise, it's not real. Otherwise, it's not real Christianity. So, we're not going to try and force you to become a Christian, but we do, when you make the decision, we do want you to be able to at least make an informed decision. And I want to urge all of us as believers, and that's, that's from, a, from the perspective of believers why I'm going through this uh, process and, and, and this, this reasoning, uh, we need to love our colleagues, our friends, our families enough that we're willing to help them think through the difficult issues and through their objectives to the faith so that they can you know, be open to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and, 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 and realize um, that Jesus is the way. So Jesus makes these exclusive claims. He first says, uh, if you can just bring up the next, the next slide. Um, he says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Like totally exclusive claims. Now the question is, so Jesus is claiming exclusive truth. He's claiming Total truth, exclusive truth. He's claiming to be the only way to the Father. He's claiming to be the only life, the only one that can give life. You know? So exclusive uh, truth, exclusive, exclusive way, and the exclusive life. So let's just look at that. Is it intolerant and arrogant to lay claim to exclusive truth? Now, just in the introduction to that, I want to read another portion from uh, Keller's book. He says, How could there be just one true faith? Asked Blair a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert someone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Now, he holds that up as just a very typical um, view and perspective of so many people today. And this perspective is increasing. Maybe in, 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 in New York, where he lives, it's more prevalent than in South Africa, but it's certainly very much on the rise in South Africa. Many people, you know, if you make, you know, quote, exclusive claims like these that Jesus makes, many people will be offended at it because of these kinds of reasons. He says, during my nearly two decades in New York City, I have had numerous of opportunities to ask people, uh, what is your biggest problem with Christianity? What troubles you the most about its beliefs and how it is practiced? One of the most frequent answers I have heard over the years can be summed up in one word, exclusivity. Christianity makes very exclusive claims. I was once invited to be the Christian representative in a panel discussion 
at a local college along with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam. The panelists uh, were asked to discuss the differences among religions. The conversation was courteous, intelligent, and respectful in tone. Each speaker affirmed that there were significant, irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. So, you know, this, this lady that is quoting as saying, you know, all the major religions are basically the same. You know, she says that about the major religions, but what they say about themselves, or what we say about ourselves is, no, there are, there are significant irreconcilable differences, not just superficial differences, but significant essential differences. Um, a case in point was the person of Jesus. We all, all the panelists, uh, we all agreed on, uh, on the statement, if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right about Jesus, that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line is this. We couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. Several of the students were quite disturbed by this. One student insisted that what mattered was uh, to believe in God and to be a loving person yourself. To insist that one faith was better, uh, has a better grasp of the truth than others is intolerant. So, you know, and, and, and you know, people would go on to say, but you know, how can you have world peace you know, if there are all these differences between religion? You know, and pe some people even say religion is dangerous. It causes wars and it causes conflict and all that kind of stuff. So how do we answer that? What's the solution to that as society? Now, one of the solutions that people have, have um, proposed is just suppress religion. Suppress all religion. And, and many governments have done that. You know, Soviet Russia, really strongly, it was very atheistic, uh, very secular, very atheistic, and strongly suppressed all religion, especially Christianity. Mao Zedong and, and Red China did pretty much the same. And they, to some extent, still doing it. I, I, I hear it's better now after the Beijing Olympics and that China is opening up a lot more. But they still um, suppress and oppress a lot of the church. So is that the solution? Has it worked for China? I mean, after the Second World War, the Chinese uh, Communist Party kicked out all the Western missionaries. And they thought, ha, we've ridded our country of... Christianity. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. What happened was it forced the local Christians to take up positions of leadership and the church became significantly stronger and started growing by orders of magnitude. So much so that the, gov the Chinese government was complaining that, that the church, the underground church, is like Chinese bamboo. You know this, this Chinese bamboo? Uh, it, overnight it grows you know, a couple of feet. It can grow up to a meter or more than a meter in one night. And they say, they, they were complaining, you know, because they were really ruthless. They were, you know, absolutely, you know, ruthless in handling the church, you know, persecuting the church, just destroying the church, killing people, throwing them in work camps and working them to death, torturing them to try and get them to, to give up their faith. They were totally ruthless. They say, but they, they were complaining and saying, we, you, you know, we, we, we cut down, you know, the church to, to the to the ground one evening and the next morning, you know, like Chinese bamboo, it's grown, uh, you know, all over the place again. And it's been impossible for people to, to suppress, for governments to suppress uh, religions. In fact, Alistair McGrath says the following, and this is interesting, because 
you know, both the, those guys I mentioned now, Soviet Russia and, and, and Red China, you know, under Stalin and Mao Zedong and, and the guys who followed, uh, had this utopian view of a world without religion. You know, like John Lennon sang, imagine no religion, it's easy if you try. You know, so, so that sentiment of religion is a problem and we're going to solve it by just suppressing all religion and imposing atheism or agnosticism or secularism on the world. They did that. And in doing that, because they said, no, it's, it's a problem. You know, religion is, is intolerant. It's, it causes violence and so on. In doing that, they, they caused more intolerance and violence than all the religions put together. I mean, Stalin killed more than 20 million people. Mao Zedong more than 100 million. And Alistair McGrath says, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes in human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of the century in, uh, were, were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. In other words, that cure is much worse than the disease. Much worse. Even if people say that religion is a problem, even if we grant that, the solution clearly is not to oppress religion and impose atheism or secularism. That ends up being far worse than the supposed problem of religion. Um, then also, another way of dealing with it that has been proposed by people is not oppressing religion and, and sort of you know, persecuting different kinds of religions to try and stamp them out, but more subtly suppressing religion by shaming people from religion, uh, you know, making re people who are religious, who are Christians, or you know, from whatever other religion, look stupid or unenlightened or um, you know, just backward. You know, so, so creating a culture in which religion is sort of shamed and, and looked down upon, frowned upon, um, and so trying to um, do that. And, and it's done by, by a lot of different statements, like the statement we read, all religions are basically the same. So it's you know, intolerant to say that um, your religion is more true or superior in any way than anyone else's religion. You know? and, and, and these things are repeated so often that they become a type of um, common sense that everyone accepts uncritically, without even thinking about it. And that people believe just because they've heard it so often. Um, <clears throat> now, the, the thing that, that that kind of thing ignores is just that exactly like all the panelists were saying in, in this panel that Tim Keller was, you know, we're not the same. We're definitely not the same. We're very different. And I mean, the Bible says so. John 14 verse 6, you know, where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me is one example. But I mean, Jesus wasn't the only one that said it. I mean, the, the apostles said the same thing. In Acts 4 verse, verse uh, 12, Peter, uh, the apostle Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> and, um, you know, people will say, you know, to make that kind of exclusive claim, you know, no, you know, all religions are basically the same. You know, doctrine doesn't matter. But by saying doctrine doesn't matter, I mean, if you ask those people, doctrine doesn't matter and so on, you know, the details, them, what do you believe about God? Oh, no, God is this loving, you know, spirit. 
you know, that, that doesn't judge, but that, you know, everyone will go to hell. Really? Will Hitler go to hell? Will Stalin and Mao Zedong go to, uh, to heaven? You know, will Hitler go to heaven? No. Do you really believe that? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, let me think about that. No, actually, some people will go to heaven. No, but, well, who? <laughs> and who decides? Surely God must decide. Surely God must judge also. How can, he, how can he be a good God and look upon the evil of the world and do nothing about it? But, but can you see that that person that says, now I believe in a loving God that doesn't judge and, that, and, and I don't believe in hell, I don't believe in heaven, that that's also a theological position. And you're saying, no, but my theological position that God is only a God of love who never judges is superior to everyone else's. My theological position that the gods, you know, whether it be Allah of the Muslims or, or Yahweh um, of, of, of the Jews uh, or Yahweh, uh, Jesus as Yahweh of the Christians, all actually basically the same. And that's my theological position and it's superior to yours. Can, can you see that the person who says that is actually doing the very thing they forbid others to do? Like, like Keller says, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine in itself. It holds a specific view of God which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view are doing the uh, view, do the very thing they forbid others to do. So by saying that all religions are basically the same and that religions shouldn't be arrogant by claiming that they are better than you're doing the very thing you're forbidding others to do. You're saying that my view of all religions is superior to everyone else's view. And everyone should convert to my view that all religions are actually the same. So you're doing the very thing you, you, you forbid other people to do. Then another one is, you know, by saying, you know, um, no, actually all religions only have a part of the truth. Only sort of partially know certain aspects of the truth. And therefore, you know, you, you can't claim total truth. You can't claim that, uh, that there is total truth. And, 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 you know, that picture up there of... You've all heard the, the parable of the, the emperor and the elephant and the blind men. That's often used for justification. It goes like this. You know, there's this emperor who wants to amuse himself. So he has an elephant you know, in, his, in his throne room and he invites a bunch of blind men. And, and he leads them, you know, has them led to the elephant and they all touch different parts of the elephant uh, and feel different parts of the elephant with their, with their hands. They don't know what it is, and they just feel you know, one, one part of the elephant. And then he, he has them say what they, what, what they think they, they're touching. And the one is touching the trunk, and he says, no, it's, it's some other flexible hose-like thing, you know, almost like a snake or something. And the other one is touching the, 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 the leg, and he says, no, man, it's like a, a, a big, you know, hard... Uh, inflexible, you know, something like a tree trunk or something, you know. And the other one's feeling the side and he's saying, no, man, stupid. It's like a, a big flat thing like a wall, you know. And the other one's feeling the ear and he's saying, like, it's like a big leaf. And the other one's feeling the tail and he's saying, no, it's, it's like some brush, you know, or something with, with bristles. You know, that's what it is. And, and, and the emperor is like laughing and having a good time, you know, at the expense of these blind men who can't figure out, you know, what they're touching. And, and then the, 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 the skeptic or the atheist or the agnostic will go and say, well, in the same way, you know, all different world religions are like these blind men touching the elephant. And they're all touching the same elephant, but they only have part of the picture. How does that sound to you? Many people are convinced by it. But here's the problem with it. Here's the problem with it. It's saying every world religion only sees part 
God is. Part of the elephant, if I can put it that way. But in this parable, who is the emperor? Who who does the emperor represent? The emperor represents the, the skeptic or the atheist or the agnostic. In other words, he's saying, you guys only see a part, so you must be humble because you only see in part. But I... See the big picture. I am the emperor. I have a God's eye view on things. And the only way you can judge that others see partially is if you yourself claim to see fully. Can you see once again that those claiming that Christianity and other religions are arrogant to claim that they see the big picture are actually doing exactly that? They're claiming we're seeing the big picture and therefore we can judge everyone else doesn't see the big picture, doesn't see the whole elephant. So can you see that that argument, that whole analogy doesn't work. It falls apart. It's inconsistent. It does the very thing it forbids others to do. It's hypocrisy in its worst form. Right? And um, as uh, we were doing Bible school and discussing this very thing, and Vimpy was reminding us, well, when God reveals himself, he's not like a silent elephant. He actually talks back. He actually communicates. So this analogy is wrong. It's a wrong, it's a faulty analogy. It doesn't work. Then others would say, no, religions are, uh, religious belief is too culturally conditioned to be exclusive truth or to be total truth. Uh, and, and the argument goes often sometimes like this. You get different forms of the argument. But, but some of the, one of the arguments is like, no, all world religions sort of are effective and prevalent at their source, you know, at their place of origin. Because... You know, ultimate religion is just a cultural thing. It's a, it's a thing that you inherit by tradition and you're sort of conditioned to believe those things. The problem is that statement is true for every religion except Christianity. Christianity started in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, in Israel. But the, the majority of Christians are no longer in the Middle East. It spread then to Europe, North America, Africa... I mean, even, even, you know, in traditional strongholds like Europe, where in the, in the early years of Christianity, that was where the bulk, you know, in the Middle East and Europe and, and North Africa, where, where the bulk of Christianity was. It's not there anymore. You know, America has about a third, you know, supposedly people Christian. But the fastest growing forms of Christianity are in Africa and in the East, especially the Far East. So that statement that, that, that religions are only, you know, sort of really popular at the point of origin is, is true for every other religion, but definitely not for Christianity. So that argument doesn't work. And then the other argument is, you know, a skeptic would often say, no, but, you know, you're only a Christian because you were born in South Africa, you know, to Christian parents. If you were born in Morocco to Muslim parents, you would have been a Muslim. Now, now say we grant it. Say we say, okay, fine. Let's say for argument that sake that you're right. Then you have to admit, I mean, you're saying, no, you know, religions shouldn't be, you know, arrogant or, or you shouldn't even believe in religion because it's just a cultural conditioning. You know, you're a pluralist. You're a relativist. You're saying, no, all religion is culturally relative and so on. Um, but isn't it possible that you only believe that because you were born in a Western modern, postmodern society to parents and in a culture that conditioned you to think in that pluralistic way. Isn't it possible that if you were born in Morocco to Muslim parents, then you would have been a Muslim? 
and that by your own argument, it would be wrong. So, so, so your objections to religion fall flat by your own argument. Am I making sense or am I being a bit too, you know... Spurgeon said, you know, you must preach to the Lord's sheep, not his giraffes. So I hope I'm not <laughs> going over your heads. <laughs> but I think it's, it's good sometimes for us to, to, um, to take difficult issues and to really think about them. Because people out there in the world are thinking about them. Our friends are thinking about them. And if we love them, we will think about it. And we, we owe them intelligent, well-thought-through answers, not just pat answers. Not just quick, you know, pat answers or dismissals of their questions. So let's, let's think about it. So I want to read you um, a portion here. Um, I can find it. Here we go. By now the fatal flaw in this approach uh, to religion in general and Christianity in particular should be obvious. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable. Or that God is loving but not wrathful uh, 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 and doesn't judge. Or that God is an impersonal, uh, impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe that the world would be a better place if someone dropped their traditional religious views of God and truth and adhered and adopted theirs. Therefore... Their view is also exclusive, is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be discouraged as well. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding the traditional religious beliefs. Mark Lilla, a professor at the University of Chicago, spoke to a bright young student at Wharton Business School who, to Lilla's bafflement, had gone forward in a Billy Graham crusade and gave, given his life to Christ. And Lilla writes, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he, has, he was about to take to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his, his dignity depends maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. Doubt, like faith, Lilla continues, has to be learned. It is a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherence, like himself, he's just being an honest skeptic here, ancient or modern, have so often been proselytizers. In other words, they want to convert other people to their skeptical and secular views. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to this question, and I don't have one for myself. So, you know, this guy's at least being very honest and saying, you know, if I'm right about all my skepticism and so on, why am I so concerned to try and convince other people of my skepticism, of my atheism? And, and I think that's a, you know, well done on him for being so honest at least. So in the end, it is not more narrow to claim that one religion is right. Uh, sorry, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way of thinking about all religions, namely that all uh, religions are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. 
Let me, let me, let me uh, just bring up the, the next picture there. You've all seen, you know, you've all, when you were at school, maybe you, you, you did this where, where they sent around the, the raffle jar with all the toffees in and everyone got it, you know, you had to pay a certain amount of money and then you had to guess how many toffees in the jar and whoever got closest got the toffees, right? How many wrong answers are there to the question, how many toffees are in the jar? Many, right? Many wrong answers. How many right answers are there? One right answer. You see, that is the nature of truth. To any question about real, inherent, essential matters of truth, there's one right answer and many wrong answers. Truth is by its very nature exclusive. By its very nature exclusive. So the fact that Jesus makes exclusive claims should not trouble us. In fact, if he didn't, we, should, we, should, we would question whether he actually is the truth. So not only does Jesus claim exclusive truth, he exclaims ex- exclusive life. Think about this. Who qualifies to be a savior? Save us of what? Well, one of the things that we need to be saved of is death. We die. We grow old. We grow sick. We die. The mortality rate is still 100%. There are about 150,000 people dying daily on planet Earth. So if anyone wants to come along and be a savior and claim to be a savior, they're going to have to solve that little problem. Thank you very much. And who, who amongst all those claiming to be saviors has solved this problem? Well, two things here. I mean, the Bible says that sin, uh, death came into the world through sin. Um, if someone, if sin is the problem and God's judgment on sin is the problem, and that, that judgment has to be meted out for God to be just, then only someone who's a sinless Savior can save others from their sin. Because you, you, cannot, you cannot pay for the sins of others if you have sins of yourself to, for, to pay for, Right? And, and notice what Jesus says at the beginning of John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That wording there is not accidental. It's not accidental. It's on purpose. In fact, seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. Seven I am statements. And not only the, you know, those qualified I am statements like I am the way, the truth, and life, but Jesus even makes seven absolute I am statements. Before Abram was, I am. Hang on, Jesus, don't you know grammar? Shouldn't you have said before Abram was, I was? You got your grammar wrong there. No, no, no. Jesus was very intentional. He said before Abram was, I am. What was he referring to? He was referring to Moses and the burning bush. Because when Moses stood before the burning bush and, and God, the Lord, sent him to, 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 to Egypt to say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and, and Moses said, but what will I tell them? Who will I tell them sent me? What does God say from the burning bush? Tell them I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. And what Jesus is saying when he says I am, the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, that very same I am, that very same Yahweh, the one who is and the one who causes all else to be, the one who spoke from the burning bush, that is who I am. 
I am sinless perfection. I am God Himself. And that is why I can save you from your sin, is because I don't have any sin of my own to pay for. But not only that, this whole, the whole context of this um, discussion is in the context of Jesus saying, I'm going away, right? I'm going to die, and I'm going to go away. But don't worry, I'm going to leave you, and then I'm going to come back and, find, uh, and get you again and take you to be with me. In other words, I'm going to die and go away, but then I'm going to come back. How are you going to come back when you're dead? Well, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm not going to stay dead. Here's the thing. Muhammad died and he never rose again. Krishna died and he never rose again. Buddha died and he never rose again. Jesus died, but he rose again. And his followers saw him up to 500 at one time. And they signed their eyewitness testimony in their own blood. They died for their testimony that on the third day he rose again. Now if you cannot trust that testimony, you can't trust anything. You see, here's the thing. We all face the problem of death. And the only one who qualifies to be Savior for us is the one who's dealt with the problem of death and sin, and that's Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who died and experienced what we're all going to experience, but then rose again, so that proving that He can raise us up again as well. And that's why Jesus is the only one qualifies to be Savior. And that's why Jesus can rightly say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one will pass through death and survive it unless they do it with my help. No one. Because I'm the only one that has done it. You see, Lazarus died and, and he was resurrected by Jesus, but he died again. He was only resuscitated. Jesus wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. When Jesus rose again, he rose to never die again, ever. And that is what He can do for us as the pioneer of our faith. So only someone who was, who Jesus claimed to be, could do what Jesus claimed to do. So Jesus is exclusive truth, exclusive life, but Jesus is also the exclusive way. And I want to end off with this. Um, Jesus doesn't only teach the way or show the way. He is the way. Think about it in this way. Say you're in an aeroplane. And the aeroplane's engines both break and it's about to crash. And there's a parachute. What do you've got to do? Oh, thank goodness. There's a parachute. Thank God for the parachute. I believe in the parachute. The parachute can save me. I must tell everyone about the parachute because the parachute is the way out of this situation and out of this trouble, out of this plane crash. Thank God for the parachute. You can go on about the parachute. When that plane crashes, you're going to die with it. Unless you take the parachute and actually put it on. <laughs> and jump out of the plane. And pull the string. So that the parachute can help you to land safely. You see, it's the same with Jesus. One thing to say, I acknowledge Jesus. I acknowledge the parachute. I believe in the parachute. I'm very thankful for the parachute. But have you put on the parachute? See, Jesus is the way. It's not enough to know about Him. You've got to walk on Him. Just like it's not good enough to know about the parachute, you've got to put on the parachute. Another example, if you look at, that, at the screen, there was this guy in America. It was long 
ago, many decades ago, I can't remember how long ago, he, w- he would do this thing at the Niagara Falls. I mean, the Niagara Falls are like seriously a high waterfall. So they, 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 they put a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And then what he'd do is he'd walk across. You know, and people are like, oh, you know, amazing. You know, they'd like be very, you know, like scared and so on. But then he'd get across and like they would applaud and this is, wow, you know, this is impressive. And then he'll take the, he took a wheelbarrow and he pushed the wheelbarrow across. Well, he first said to the people, now do you believe I can walk across? And I said, yeah, yeah, now we believe it. Do you think I could push the wheelbarrow across? Yeah, maybe. So he took the wheelbarrow and he pushed the wheelbarrow across. Now do you believe I can push the wheelbarrow across? Yeah, now we know you can because we see, we've seen you do it. Then he took a bag of cement and put it in the, in the wheelbarrow. He said, now I think I can push it across. But now they were sort of quite confident. About it. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty sure you can. So he pushed it across. And they were very impressed. And he said, do you believe I can put a, a, a person in, in this wheelbarrow and put them, push them across? Yeah, 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 we, we think you can. Okay, who's going to get in? <laughs> you see, it's one thing to believe in theory that Jesus can cr- push you across the tightrope to eternity. It's another thing altogether to get in the wheelbarrow by faith. See, Jesus is the way. It's not good enough to know about Him. You've got to walk on Him. You've got to walk the way. Have you done that this morning? Have you done that this morning? Are you as a Christian able to help your friends and your family and your colleagues to do that? Are you ready to help them to do that? Are you ready to, to present a compelling case for Christianity that will help them deal with their objections that keep them away from responding to the gospel? If we love them, we owe them. We owe at least that to them. Amen? We owe that to them.